0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God!
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did what? A struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, (laughs) right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is part of your weekly ritual. This is unfolding behind your eyes. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles and uh, back at the microphone after a brief hiatus for the uh, 4th of July. I was out of town. I was visiting family. I was uh, swimming in the ocean, and I was eating food and sleeping. And uh, now I've returned, so it's good to be with you. Uh, so what's happening? Well, uh, over the weekend, my dad hurt his back. You know, when you, when you get together with family, there are usually a million little uh, narratives unfolding, strange dramas interpersonal, uh, dramas, uh, or, or personal dramas, all sorts of different things happening. But my dad hurt his back, which was like a minor subplot to the weekend. And we think that he did it trying to lift one of my nieces. Who's like, you know, seven, my dad's about 70, almost 70, not quite. So he was struggling with that all weekend long. And, uh, everyone was giving him advice, which is what uh, people tend to do when you have a bad back. And I know this firsthand because, uh, you know, I struggled with back pain, uh, lower back pain for the better part of 20 years. Like from the time I was 15 until, you know, 35, somewhere in there. And, uh, I feel like this is a common complaint of writerly people we do a lot of sitting with uh, improper posture so uh, anyway uh, the point is that the the story of my back pain and particularly how it finally resolved itself is uh, interesting and if I've told this one before forgive me I honestly can't remember anymore I've done so many shows at this point I lose track so, uh, I'll try to be brief. Basically what happened was, uh, I was, you know, 35 or, you know, may- maybe it was like 33. I forget, but uh, I was having an episode of, uh, acute back pain where I couldn't walk properly. I couldn't sit, uh, comfortably. I was crooked and a uh, miserable. and frustrated after years and years of this. So finally I made an appointment with a uh, doctor, an orthopedist, uh, like a medical doctor. And, and this, you know, after years of trying everything, I mean, I did acupuncture, I did yoga, I did rolfing, I did chiropractic, I got an MRI, I got x-rays, uh, I sat on one of those balls, I did Pilates. I read Dr. Sarno. I did everything that like a person can do who has back pain. So uh, reluctantly, I think it was my wife. We were dating at the time. And I think she urged me to go to the doctor because nothing I was doing at home was working. And so I think I went to an orthopedic specialist. I believe that's what it's called. And so this guy, very nice guy. Uh, Assessed my situation And one of the things that he did Was he measured my legs And as it turned out One of my legs is a fraction of an inch Longer than the other And so uh, Noting this fact The doctor suggested that I go to a podiatrist To get uh, orthotics Which are uh, Those things that you put in your shoes That help you walk properly and in a balanced manner. And, uh, the funny thing is I actually had orthotics when I was in high school, but then in college, when I was at Boulder and experiencing uh, back pain, I went to a rolfer, a kind of new aged, uh, hippie doctor in Boulder. And, uh, this rolfing doctor told me that orthotics were uh, a part of the problem and not a part of the solution And that I should do away with them and walk in a manner consistent with nature. And I believed him. It's like old, like white, you know, he had like a long white beard, one of those guys. So anyway, um, you know, I'm in Los Angeles all these years later in a state of great pain and frustration. And uh, I wind up uh, going to this podiatrist To get some orthotics. I'll try anything. At this point. So I go there. And long story short. uh, My back pain. Once I had these orthotics. Essentially. uh, Disappeared. Like not 100% pain. uh, And discomfort free. But like 90%. 87%. Somewhere in there. The point is that it's no longer debilitating orthotics were the answer for me it was an alignment issue like my alignment was off and the way that i was walking was screwing things up and uh, the orthotics corrected the error so uh, obviously i was very happy about this i thanked the doctor and a few weeks later uh you know i I got a bill in the mail for a co-payment or something to that effect And I, you know, came in an envelope, I put the envelope on my desk, and uh, it got lost in the shuffle amid, you know, a stack of papers. And I forgot about it. So, uh, you know, uh, a couple of weeks go by, and I'm cleaning off my desk one day, and I find this bill, and I realize that I've forgotten about it. I see that it's overdue, and I uh, set about to mail a check immediately. Uh, But when I go to find the envelope that came with the bill, uh, I realize that it's lost. So I didn't have like the doctor's address. I didn't know where to mail the check. So what do I do? Uh, I Google him. And when I Google this doctor, the first result, the first search result that comes up on my screen is a police report indicating that my doctor is a level one sex offender who has been convicted of child rape in the state of Florida. Uh, there was a mug shot. It was definitely him, like absolutely no question at all. It was his face staring back at me with a full you know police report, and he was uh, bug-eyed and uh, perspiring. So that was a bit surprising for me. And uh, I did wind up mailing the check. It was like for, you know, $40 or something. But, you know, I owed him for services rendered and uh, had this weird mixed feeling where I felt indebted to him for uh, the work that he had done to help me. But at the same time, I was revolted by... The, you know, by his behavior and, and I am now forced to live with the knowledge that after enduring nearly two decades of recurring back pain of a debilitating nature, I was ultimately healed by a pedophile, (laughs) Uh, you know? After visiting literally more than a dozen medical professionals over the course of two decades, it was the healing touch of a convicted child molester that finally did the trick. Just brutal. And you know what? He he was a weird guy. There was something off about him, and I felt it. And I even told my wife about it. I didn't think he was a child molester, but I did come home after my appointment, and I said, boy, he was strange but then once the pain went away it was like he's strange but he's good he fixed me and the only reason i went to him is because of a referral which now makes me wonder about this other doctor you know maybe he didn't know about it maybe he'd never googled the guy but you know the guy's office was weird and he's a foot doctor of all kinds of do- you know, if you're a pedophile, of all you know, types of doctors to become, you're in defeat. It's all just very gross. But uh, his office was odd, and every time I would go in there, it would be empty. Uh, never any other patients. The waiting room was just empty, and his wife was the receptionist, and she was she was strange. She wore really heavy makeup and had these really big. Like fake acrylic nails and big hair. There was something kind of anachronistic about her. She seemed like she was from a different, like from the 80s or something. And there was a coffee table in the waiting room that was made out of uh, black rock. Like onyx, is that what it's called? Just like a a tacky, shiny black rock. And then on the walls were these really big, uh, really tacky like fluorescent paintings of dolphins and whales, like undersea landscapes or seascapes. You know what I'm talking about. But uh, he healed me. He healed my pain. My guest today is Alina Simone. She is a singer and a writer based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, She's originally from the Ukraine and was raised in Massachusetts. Her debut novel, Note to Self, is now available from Faber and Faber. I'm very pleased to have her here on the program. And uh, let's get started, shall we? Here she is, folks. This is Alina Simone. And her novel, once again, is called Note to Self. (laughs)
1: I'm in the office of my publisher, in an anonymous man's office, whose name may or may not be Steven, and I'm staring at a dead computer monitor, and some clutter, <laughs> and um, filing cabinet, closed door, lots of books that look like they're really good.
0: New York City? Yeah.
1: New York City, sorry, yeah, yeah, just off of Union Square. And, who,
0: and, and your publisher is FSG? Yes. That's a good publisher. I'm imagining like mahogany, like FSG is a very like uh, you know highbrow, well-respected uh, imprint. So like, is it? What does it look like? I mean, is it? What's the, the general I, I vibe? Would,
1: I, I would, I would say it's kind of like more IKEA than mahogany. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of blonde wood laminate going on here. <laughs>
0: oh really? Obviously, I'm just I'm picturing like men in robes and like you know ancient bookshelves or something, but you
1: know. It's a really new office. They actually moved a couple of years ago, and it's all kind of like glass and chrome and blonde wood. It's surprisingly modern.
0: That seems to be the trend, though. I feel like everyone's going modern these days. Like it's it's sort of considered like uh, is is gauche the right word? I don't know how to talk about interior design, but it's considered bad taste to have like old school stuff or like country themed furniture or something.
1: I think they had, I think that they had, like, the men in robes and the mahogany in their old place, which, uh, when they moved, it was covered by the New Yorker. I think that their old headquarters was this venerable old school, you know, kind of set up, and it was, you know, some, some big literary tragedy when they moved <laughs> and, um, you know, did their Google makeover. But, um, but it's all very comfortable,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, it's, and it's got to be nice to be published by them, right? I mean, like I, I'm re- I was reading uh, a little bit about how you wound up there, and it, and it sounds like um, this kind of like whimsical stroke of luck. Like someone contacted you, correct?
1: Yeah, it was it was it was a whimsical stroke of luck, and the thing is, I didn't, I had no idea who they were, so even though now, now I have some perspective and I'm like, oh, wow, it's, it's really cool that this is my publisher. But when they contacted me, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know any publisher from any other publisher, and I wasn't even a writer, and I'd never published anything. So it was very abstract to me. Um, I was an indie rock singer. I was an indie rock singer for many, many years. And then an editor here heard my music on Pandora, and then he bought my albums at the now defunct Virgin Records, It was in Union Square, and then he listened to them a bunch and literally just, like, sent me an email out of the blue asking if I wanted to write a book. It was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me.
0: you realize there there are, like, long-suffering writers listening to this right now who are, like, snapping their pencils in half as they listen?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and in every interview that I ever do, that is pointed out to me, but then I have to point out right back at my interview and my interviewers that you know I really ate shit for eight years as a musician I mean if if like I understand being like oh that's that's just so unfair you'd never written anything and then you just get everything handed to you it's like yeah I get it but I was you know sleeping on floors and singing in bars in Kansas for three people on a Wednesday night for years and years and years and years and years and I think that it I think that um paying your dues as a you know as a rock musician is a lot more humiliating than paying your dues as a writer That's it involves hauling a lot of gear and driving a lot of miles and hassling a lot more people than you could even possibly hassle in publishing because there just aren't that many people to to hassle and so it was it was weird because the call that i had been waiting for would have been from like matador records you know what i mean it's like i was always waiting for this moment of like oh my god please someone who can like you know you know get me to the next level like call me or, you know, notice me. And that never really happened in the world of music. I just, you know, I was always on these tiny indie labels and did a lot myself and had a lot of help from my friends. And so this was like the first time that a real company, you know, was like, here, you know, do this cool thing for us. So, you know, and my first book is, you know, details those those sad times in in immense detail and so you know anyone who feels bad about me can (laughs) can hopefully feel better about me after after reading about my sad life
0: I was going to say once they know how thoroughly you've suffered they might (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) I mean well I hesitate to I mean I wasn't like breaking rocks in a Chilean coal mine but you know (laughs) it it was it's like it's It's just, um, it's very labor intensive. I mean, you know, I think it's one thing to get rejected, you know, sitting at your desk and getting an email from an agent or something saying, sorry, this isn't for me. It's quite another thing to like play a hundred shows a year to like know people (laughs) like all over the country. Well, you know, it's interesting
0: interesting, uh, that you say that because, you know, we talk about rock stardom or being a musician. And I think from the outside looking in, it can often seem like it's this, you know, this really glamorous thing, but uh, and I guess this is maybe the case for all the arts, but uh, it doesn't really get glamorous until you're really at a high level. There's so much, like you say, schlepping and long road trips and sleeping in weird places and eating shitty food and then having to get up in front of people and you're basically, you know, enduring a kind of public humiliation. There's like two people there, <laughs> you know? like.
1: Yeah, I mean, that happens. I mean, of course, there are good shows too, but you never know what's going to happen to you. And I know, you know, like people who are at a much higher level than me, who are still, you know, struggling and still have those shows with very little people, and still, you know, despite having been in bands with huge pedigrees and stuff like that. I mean, it, you know, like, uh, you know, like th- things, things. They're sort of like a natural shelf life to even like a popular band, unless you're like Lady Gaga or Madonna or something like that. But, you know, even the reasonably popular bands, like they get to their like fourth album, you know, like, like it's not uncommon to kind of see a decline each time you go to, you know, that city where you sold out, you know, three years ago. It's like all of a sudden, oh, you know, there are fewer people here. Like I saw it happen myself, you know, many times, for many different bands and people that I looked up to, and was like, oh, my God, I just got asked to open for this band that I adore. And then I'd go open for them and there'd be like 30 people there. And I'd be shocked, you know, I'd be like, what is this, you know? So it's deceptive, I think, because there's so much um, PR in, in the music world, so much more than in the book world. I mean, you know, like when I put out an album, it wouldn't be unusual for like, I don't know, 50 places to write about it or interview me or whatever. That's not counting radio, but just like, you know, there's publications, blogs, you know, things <laughs> like everyone has one, like everyone seems to have their own music publication. And, um, and, and I think that that creates an aura of, of like success or impermeability or something that, that is really different from reality. I mean, people thought I was a lot more successful than I was, I mean, consistently, because they just look at, like, whatever, the one sheet or something, and say, well, you must be doing great, like, you're on Pitchfork, and it's like, yeah, that does nothing, you know, well, unless yeah.
0: you're, like, well, the same thing, you know. Well, the same thing goes for publishing. People think, you know, some people assume that if you're published by a big house or, you know, if your book uh, gets, like, a good review in the New York Times, that automatically means you're, like, a millionaire, which is absurd but there is yeah there is that impression out there
1: yeah that's true too and i know a lot of people like that too you know have had lots of great press and great places and are you know it's a, still a struggle it's, it's definitely a struggle to make a living this way like you know without teaching or something
0: yeah i mean i'm doing a podcast look at me <laughs> uh, so and so you went into the music business at what age
1: I was a, definitely a late bloomer. I mean, I'd always, always, always wanted to be a singer, but I had, um, massive stage fright. I just, it was just one of those, um, circumstances of having your personality completely not match what, what your goal was. <laughs> Cause I just was so terrified to stand in front of people, but all I wanted to do was sing. And if I could have just been some kind of behind the scenes studio only singer, I would have done it. You know, if that was at all a route it's not, you know? Um, uh, so I just, kind of, it took many years of like kind of open mic nights and singing on the street and just singing in kind of really like low stakes situations for me to work my way up to like, you know, having my own band and, you know, front fronting a band and things like that. So I was probably like 26 when I really started playing shows and like 28 when I recorded my first EP.
0: Okay. But that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess in the music business, that's, That's a bit later. I mean, a lot of these acts come up through, like, you know, when they're teenagers or whatever, but, you know, you're still... Yeah, or just early
1: 20s or early 20s. I mean, I think especially if you know it's what you want to do, which I did, you know, it just, I just was doing everything but that because I just couldn't bring myself to, you know, just so afraid. And I had, like, you know, I'd get, like, headaches and nausea, like, I really just could not be on stage and I still don't love being on stage. I'm not a natural or comfortable performer at all. And, and right now I perform very rarely, which is great.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so, how, like, and are you, are you uh, afraid of public speaking? Like any kind of like standing in front of people? And
1: I mean, I haven't been called upon to really public speak much. Aside from singing, you know, aside from like the stage banner and all that, so i I don't know readings are no problem i I don't even understand readings, you know, like you're like, I'm reading this out loud from a book that like <laughs> right. you all could read yourselves like i I'm kind of surprised i I'm kind of like kudos to you publishing industry for making this some kind of an event that people go to because well, it seems like some trick of advertising or something
0: well, yeah, no, it's like I've never understood it really all that well either and especially for somebody who's got a musical background. I mean, like, that's a, that's a reason for an audience and, like, a get-together, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah,
1: and I and I do end up singing at a lot of book things because, like, almost immediately, as soon as I got, like, the book deal, I started getting asked to sing at all of these book events for probably the past, I mean, like like, once or twice a month for the past two or three years, I've been singing at book events. People's book release party is, like Um, because they're like, oh, an author who also sings.
0: Yeah, will you sing for us right now? Can you sing me a song?
1: Oh, I mean, I can't really (laughs) sing you a song a cappella. It would be so terrible.
0: You need some some instrumentation. I've put like two or three people on the spot on this show asking them to sing, and everyone's been like... They've begged off. I won't make you do it. I, I mean, I can't. Oh,
1: if I was prepared, if I was like, if I'd kind of steeled myself for it in advance and was like, okay, I'm going to sing an a cappella song over the phone.
0: <laughs> Plus, your, your, pu- the your, pu- your publicist at FSG might start worrying if she hears you like,
1: <laughs> right. Out. At, at the office of my publisher <laughs> in this guy's office.
0: Could not be a better <laughs> circumstance. It's perfect.
1: <laughs> They're going to be like, what is she doing? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, okay, so when you went into the business, I guess like a one of the questions that's rising in my mind um, has to do with your experience of the music business, and then maybe how it parallels what's been happening in publishing, and if you see any similarities or if you learned anything from having been through um, both gauntlets, so to speak. Because uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly how old you are or what your experience of the music business was. Like, did you enter it? post Napster? Like, have, are you kind of a, have you no,
1: a- I think I was pre Napster. I was pre Napster. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember the days when like, you know, I had, you know, records that, you know, were, were like, I mean, my, my indie labels, you know, lavished a lot of care on like the album artwork and things like that. So that it would be more of a collector's item and, you know, exported and stuff, you know, I, I was from that kind of era of this is an object and it's limited, you know, because it's the indie world, not you know. Um, and so, yeah, Napster. I mean, my my label, which put out like uh, two of my my first two full length albums, they went bankrupt, you know, in in kind of spectacular fashion because they also ran a music magazine that was distributed all over the country, and so they were kind of like all the. I mean, that, what, that's what was the label?
0: Like, what was the name of the label?
1: The label was Fifty Four Forty or Fight, and I wish I remembered the name of their magazine because it was—it was really a sweet little magazine. It was—it was a square magazine, so it was very noticeable because um, you know you'd go to Barnes and Noble and there'd be like this one square little cool magazine, and you know and they covered a lot of good bands and had good writers, photos. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was just—I I forget if it was quarterly or you know once a month, but it was um, a cool thing. And so they kind of got like hammered double because music magazines have also gone into steep decline, you know, as pitchfork and and, you know, online reviewing has really you know, stereo gum and those things have really become the drivers of, you know, music PR um, and print music magazine. I mean, who's gonna wait like a quarter, you know, three months to read about, you know, whether the latest album is good or not? I mean right. it's just you know it's kind of like Newsweek or something I mean it's like news <laughs> m-. um and and so I mean you know, like paste paper edition went out of business magnet went out of business I mean a lot of magazines got hammered, and so they got hammered kind of from two sides because they um you know their their label went bankrupt and then their magazine also went bankrupt, so they were totes bankrupt and um yeah, so with publishing I did kind of i felt like I was jumping from a sinking boat to like a boat with a leak in it you know like 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 my boat was already under the waves and now i'm like on a leaky life raft or something um but i mean that said it's still it's still a lot better off than music and at least they have at least they have the cautionary tale of what happened with the music industry um i mean i think also a lot of for better or worse, like, a lot of older people read books and are used to having a book and are used to, you know, paying for books. And in music, it's really, like, it's, like, more for young people, you know what I mean? And and as soon as young people get used to just downloading everything for free, it's like, well, that's it, you know?
0: Well, your yeah, audience
1: is just kind of...
0: It's interesting that you say that, because I've been, like, troubled by this development in, in me, uh, personally, <laughs> as I've gotten older uh-huh. Well, I mean... Where I've gotten older, What's the and
1: development, I, development in you, Brad? <laughs> the development in
0: me is that I've gotten older and I've lost contact with music in in a way that I you know I was a, I was so into it when I was you know sixteen to twenty eight or whatever like going to record stores and like yeah. Reading, yeah reading every magazine and keeping up with everything yep. and then it just I yeah. lost I lost the thread and. Is that is that just normal? That's how it is? I mean, is that how it is for you? No,
1: that happened to me, too. Yeah, I mean, and it's happened to, like, you know, I've got friends who are, you know, pretty pretty big in the music world, and it's happened to them, too, as they've gotten older. And I don't know if it's just getting older. I mean, to me, personally, like, like a file just doesn't have the same resonance, resonance as, an, as, a, as a CD or a record or a tape or whatever. Just, like... You know, and and maybe I'm just like an old ludite dinosaur out of it, you know, person. But um, I, I just I like I can't develop the same attachment to like a bunch of files that are on you know in iTunes as I as I could when I was younger to like an actual like record or tape or whatever that I would pour over the liner notes and the right. photos and you know like like it's like this thing and you carry it around with you and you're like this is my favorite tape or my favorite. I mean. I mean, I do do that with books. I I don't have an e-reader or anything like that. I still buy books um, because I just feel a lot happier sitting there with a book like and it's really like I thought about it I'm like well should I get you know a Kindle or a thing and, and, I, and I was like you know what I just don't feel happy staring at a screen there's like this low level anxiety that I always feel it's like maybe it reminds me like of being at work or something you know yeah, like yeah. of of you know like you stare into a screen all day anyways like and then you're going to relax and stare into a screen I don't care what kind of screen or how nice a screen it is like it's still a piece of plastic and, and you know and electrons or whatever and so I just decided, no, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to read real paper books that are just going to take up a lot of space in my apartment and be a hassle to move. Because I feel real joy just sitting there with my little lamp and my cup of tea and my book, and it's really relaxing. I could take it in the bathtub and I'm just happy. And, um, you know, and I, I I feel that way about music, too, that like I, uh you know, like I treasure music more when it's a physical object and I invested in it and I care about it.
0: So what do you have? Do you, um, are you, do you buy like vinyl? Or are you like are you one of those people who's like gone all the way back into vinyl? Or are you?
1: I do buy vinyl. I have to admit, like I actually, um, I just ordered this um, uh, record player um, called I think it's Orbit by this company U Turn. I hope I'm getting this right because they kickstarted it. It was like these engineers at Northeastern, and they um, they decided to make sort of a a really a really high quality record player that was under $200. And right now there, there aren't really good high quality, high sound quality record players under $200. They have like lots of bells and whistles, like MP3, you know, you can MP3 player things and other, other attachments that kind of um, detract from the sound quality. And um, so, so, so they made this record player and I've ordered it on Kickstarter and it's coming soon. And I actually um, have been ordering music on vinyl and, um, That I'm dying to listen to that I haven't listened to because it's just all sitting there on vinyl waiting for this record player to come. And I went home to my parents' place and they have like, they had like four huge cardboard boxes of Soviet, because I was born in the Soviet Union, they had four huge boxes of Soviet records, like classical and opera and folk records from the Soviet Union and I brought them all. Home and um, I'm just gonna establish like a Ludite kingdom. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm just like well, I'm, I'm into it. I just think like it's gonna be such an awesome vibe to like have this record player and nice speakers and just put it put on some vinyl and read a book and drink some manual tea.
0: Well, and so, it, <laughs> your tea is not digital. You have you have uh, no I have no
1: digital a, tea. Yeah, it's
0: analog. It's totally analog. You totally know,
1: analog I, I, tea. You know,
0: I can and I hear I can hear people. Or I do hear people sometimes or I read them online or wherever, you know, talking about how precious it is and how the hipsters are all trying to act like this and that with their turntables. And, you know, I think there are plenty of criticisms that might be valid, but I'm with you on this. Like, I think that having a paper book increasingly, you know, and and I do have a Kindle, but like I I prefer not to read it. Mm -hmm. I only use it when it's I'm in bed and like, you know. I'm trying not to wake up my wife because, you know, it's the middle of the night or whatever, but (laughs) I, uh, the the thing for me is just like trying to have a confined experience that doesn't like hold the risk of spiraling off into like, you know, a a 45 minute distraction session where, yeah,
1: exactly. Like following some link and clicking and ending up somewhere else. I mean, it's like, I I mean, I think it's actually like good for you to sit and read a book and like I have a daughter, she's two Me too. and you know, (laughs) Oh, wow. You're, you have a two-year-old daughter, too?
0: Well, she yeah, she'll be three in August, but yeah.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. What's her name? Uh, Evan. Oh, sweet. Mine's Zoe. And, um... And she loves reading and she has been a really good attention span for reading. And it just makes me so happy that like, I, I don't, I'm not like, you know, Nazi about the TV. She watches a little TV each day and I'm not like super strict about it, but she just really likes to sit with me and read a book. And it just makes me so happy that even in this digital age, that she's like, it's just peaceful and nice and we can spend an hour doing it. And I just feel like it totally bodes well for her. I'm like, awesome. You know, you can, this, this doesn't like have fireworks and like weird dragons shooting out of it. (laughs) And like, you're just using your imagination and you're looking at these pictures and you're thinking and it takes time and it takes effort. And I'm just so glad that you enjoy this. It's, It's, you know, it's important. It's like an important skill. And the more we become just these, you know, just completely just, distracted people only capable of focusing for 45 seconds at a stretch. I mean, I think it, I think it's bad for our health. You know, (laughs) I feel like it just makes for less happy people, a less happy society. I don't know. I'm old school. I'm really old school.
0: Well, and, but you know, and your, and your novel sort of touches on this, right? I mean, these are themes that you were working in with your book.
1: Yeah, my book is about internet addiction, and that's why it's really funny that <laughs> I'm actually like really not that addicted. <laughs> well, but,
0: but if you're not addicted or you're you're taking off in in like on a totally different or like you know opposite vector, it, it's obviously stemming from some deep thinking about uh, what it is you're moving away from. Right? It's not like you never have engaged or you haven't really dug into this stuff.
1: Right. I think that satire, I mean, in that my book is, you know, it's it's a, a very dark satire, you know, of, of sort of the worst case scenario, um, a hopefully funny worst case scenario, of, you know, going down the dark alley of Internet addiction. But I, I do take the feelings that I <clears throat> have from time to time and just exaggerate them, you know, because everyone has had you know, those, those periods where where they're just zoned out on the internet and three hours goes by and they're like plunged into an existential crisis. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? And, you know, so, and that happens to me too. And then I, you know, and then when I started imagining a character, like, oh my God, this is her life, you know, her life is online. And, um, yeah, so it all comes from personal experience.
0: And so, okay. And so you went from being an indie rock uh, musician touring the country, playing bars, living that life for about a decade, and then you get this call, uh, and you write this essay collection, uh, and then you decide, you know, decide to go into fiction. Like, how, how was the transition? I mean, are you this multi-talented? You can do all of these things, or did you really have to um, go through an apprenticeship, or you know, how did it, how did it
1: work? Accepted me as an apprentice. Like if I just like wrote to Jennifer Egan and was no, like, I meant, can, I I, meant, "Can I go to the cafe with you every day? And okay. Like <laughs> just watch what you watch you write in in longhand and your on your legal path? Or <laughs> that,
0: would that would be, be awesome. awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say it something.
1: would be kind of awesome if she was like, "Yes, you can. This is my cafe. Right. <laughs> Let's meet at nine every morning, and you can watch me." <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very like quiet and terrifying period. Like I actually I wrote the first book and that was a freebie, you know, I mean I had the support of my editor and and, you know, got this fantastic opportunity and did the best I could with it. But then the next book I felt like it was really on me. You know, I didn't feel like I had just this like free path to publish at FSG forever no matter what because Eric liked my music or something. <laughs> like I I felt like that was just the first book. And so I didn't even tell anyone at FSG I was writing a novel. No one saw it. I didn't share it with anyone. I literally like went away for a year and a half, and just you know, in my sad little world, <laughs> wrote it. And then when it was all finished, sent it to Eric.
0: Okay. So what was your what was your work process like? You say you went away. Like how cloistered were you? Were you working every day?
1: Yeah, I was working every day. I mean, I had um I had a baby in the midst of that time. So, but before I had the baby, I was working. I had a job. Um, a job, job, like a day job, and I would do the thing where I got up at six a.m. before work, and I wrote for two hours. You know, and then I'd go to work. So I did that. And then, and then after, after I had Zoe, you know, just whenever she was sleeping, I would work. And then, you know, when she was a little older. I got a, a part time babysitter and I, then I'd write. I mean, it took, you know, it took a couple of years. And, and that's a really like hard time to focus, as you know, when you have a tiny kid, you know, and, like yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty tough to like set a big goal for yourself and be like, okay, I have a one year old, but I'm going to write a novel going to, you know, it may not be good, you know, but I, and so it was, it was like, it was, I felt very isolated. Cause I think when you're a new parent, you're just very isolated. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't living the life I was before where I was still playing shows. I mean, when I released my first book, I released an album the same day, like my third full length album. So I did, you know, shows and touring and, you know, it wasn't just the book. So all of that kind of ended when I, You know, I had my baby and then I was, I was very isolated and that was my thing that was like writing that novel was my outlet.
0: And then when you finally finish it up and you decide that you're going to, you know, it's ready to be read, you send it to Eric at FSG. That's his name, right? Eric.
1: Yeah, Eric Chinsky. I mean I sent it my I I mean my agent sent it to Eric, but it was terrifying because I really felt like we had this sweet little relationship. Like he was, you know, my fan, he loved my music and he gave me this amazing opportunity because he loved my music and that meant so much to me. And and then, you know, we got to know each other over the course of me writing the book, which was like a year and a half. And I really felt like he was a friend. And I felt like it would have just been, if you can imagine it, like so awkward for him to be like, yeah, no. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like like it, it just, it was really terrifying to send it to him. I almost felt like telling my agent, like, let's, let's send it to like everyone else. Like, let's not even send it to FSG because I just want to like preserve this special thing that happened like it means the relationship means more to me than like publishing with them again. And and I probably would have done that, but there was literally a clause in my contract that I had to send them my book first.
0: Oh, they had first, yeah, they had like first look or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it would have been really tricky to like explain why you know like to get out of that it would have been a legal thing and I was like, okay, forget it. You can just send it to him, but I mean, I think he was—I don't know—I've never talked to him about it, but it took him a really long time to read the book. Like, like their 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 first look clause or whatever it is is like six weeks, and then after that, if they haven't gotten back to you, you you have the right to take it elsewhere. And he didn't he, at, at six weeks. He was like, "Oh, I've just been really busy. I haven't read it yet. Like, give me another, you know, month or something." But I almost had the feeling like maybe he was afraid he really wouldn't like it, you know. <laughs> Because because who's to say? He'd never, I'd never written fiction, and he never read any of my fiction, and you know, it could have just totally sucked. And maybe it does suck. I don't know. Maybe maybe he only maybe he only put it out because he 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 also you know didn't want to ruin our sweet little <laughs> story that we had.
0: Okay, but then what happened? He reads it and he comes back and he says, I, "I really like this."
1: Yeah, and he made an offer, and then I was like, you know, I don't want to. I, at that point, as an author, you can you can also take it elsewhere and see if you get a higher bid, and then go back to the you know first publisher and see if they want to raise their bid. And I, perhaps stupidly, because I have no business sense, or perhaps sentimentally, because I, you know, have a really nice feeling about <laughs> this. Tea, I just told my agent, okay, that's it. Let's just stop right there. Let's take the offer, and I don't want to you know I don't want to show it to anyone else.
0: Well, the, you know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the right thing, like the, the quote unquote right thing to do would be, but there's something to be said for loyalty. You know, if, if somebody, you know, has been good enough to you to publish your first book and then they make an offer on the second one, I think there's something. Yeah. Really
1: I nice mean, about that. they not only published my first book, but they gave me a book deal when I'd never written anything in my whole life. You know, right. I really felt like they went on such a limb with me. They essentially handed me a new career, you know, and, just out of nothing. And so I, I felt like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I did feel like it was the right thing to do, and it was just more important to me than, you know, s- scrounging up a couple extra thousand dollars, like to maintain this relationship with people that, that, that had faith in me because well, that's really rare.
0: Totally, totally. And so when you got the offer to write a book and when you were living in that sort of – um in-between period after the first book had come out and you were pondering writing fiction. Like, looking back, like, is this something that you ever envisioned for yourself? Did you ever have a literary impulse prior to this? Or did it take the outreach from FSG to sort of, wake, you know, awaken it in you?
1: Well, I mean, I never would have done it. I never would have done it if it weren't for Eric. I wasn't on the cusp of writing anything. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't keep a journal, like, you know, at that time, I think I did in like college or something, but it had been years since I did anything like that. I, I was not on the cusp, but it, it never would have happened if it weren't for him. But that said, like I was an English major in college and I was the editor of the literary magazine and I always loved writing and my, the lyrics to my songs, like I worked very hard on them and I, I don't know if that had anything to do with him, you know, suggesting I write a book, but um I certainly really cared about the lyrics. I hated, like there there are a lot of songs that I love that I just love the music too, um, and and I love singing the notes, but the words make me just cringe inside and make me so sad that these words are coming out of my mouth that like I can't sing. <laughs> you know what you mean, I mean? You and mean, I other, always
0: other people's music. You mean is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, other people's music. Okay. Other people's music. Like you mean, know, just do you like. Have a
0: like a, like, is there a song that you can think of?
1: Oh, do I have like an ex- God? Do I have an example? No, it would take me like a. It would take me a while to think of think of it. I mean, we all know those songs where you're like, oh my God, this song is awesome, but God, the chorus is so dumb. Like, <laughs> right. why didn't they just take an extra day <laughs> and like come up with some better words? And and so I always really really cared about the words in part because you're going to be you know if if you're a musician, you're going to be touring and promoting this album for like a year and singing those songs for years and years. And if they make you feel kind of dumb, you know, and if you kind of are singing some sentiment that you don't agree with and don't feel or don't feel as particularly intelligent, then it's torture, you know? So I really did work hard on my lyrics. So, but I mean, that was the extent of my like literary, literary ambition.
0: Well, it's, it's, (laughs) it's interesting too, to think about how musicians age and then how music ages and like... You see these bands that are like, you know, the, the members like the Rolling Stones or something. They're in their 70s and they're they're singing these songs they wrote in their 22 and like your job is sort of to try to sing it every time as if you're singing it for the first time. Like that that can't be easy after a while. Like I, I guess you find new ways to I don't know, to make it new or something, but that seems tough to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that there are varying degrees to being present, you know, like, I mean, there are definitely shows or parts of shows that I've just done, like, totally on autopilot, like, you're just like, God, I can sing this song in my sleep. And I, I, you know, like, who knows, like, what? you know, like how the audience is kind of taking it. If they can tell that you're just like, I'm on autopilot. I know how to sing this song. And I, you know, I I know how to like, you know, where to put the emphasis and whatever, you know, it's it sort of, I don't know, it's a tricky thing. Like, it's hard to kind of feel every moment, at least for me. I mean, maybe that's what makes me a crappy performer, <laughs> which I totally, totally admit to being, you know, like I, like I kind of checked out a lot of the time singing those songs for the millionth time.
0: It's got to. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. But did you learn anything when it came to writing your book? Did you sit down to do it and say to yourself, well, there, there's things that I learned writing lyrics for my songs that are really serving me well here? Or was just the practice that you had, you know, working regularly on creative uh, material enough to get you into the writing mode? Because I feel like that's the big leap for a lot of people is actually getting into the chair – and having that discipline like it sounds like it came fairly easily to you
1: um i think that like i I think you're right but the discipline is the hardest thing and like i mean i really think that it comes down to create a schedule for yourself and write regularly and a cheesy thing a possibly cheesy thing that i always tell people to do if they ask me for advice is to read stephen king's on writing which is a great book i think he's a great writer It's part memoir and part kind of writer's self help book. And he really, you know, he 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 explains how he gains the discipline. He explains his writing routine. He suggests a writing routine for new writers. My dad, who um, is a physics professor and has written a pop science book for FSG that came out a few years ago, he read Stephen King's book before he wrote his book. And like, you know, he was the one who told me to read it. You know, so uh, it's, it's definitely not just for amateurs or something. It's like really a useful book to read and very inspiring. And, you know, after reading it, I agreed with him. I'm like, you know what? The most important thing is like, even if you're, even if what you write is crap, you know, it's getting your ass in the chair. It's like ass to chair, (laughs) ass to chair a couple hours a day. For me, I actually did set a quota. I tried to write a thousand words a day. You know, and then when you're done, like, you have a turd that you have to really rewrite, you know, 50 times. But but it, it, there's a vast difference between having something that is complete and an architecture to work with and just having, like, a blank page that you're staring at and an endless narrative that, you know, you you don't know when you're ever going to be done with it. Right. That That's, like, a, that's, you know, I mean, and, and I, it's, I've, I have aborted projects. I have... You know, dead novels in my drawer. It's not like I, whatever, springboard from one success to another. <laughs> like, I definitely have, you know, sad, dead, bad projects that no one's ever seen that were not good and were rejected. So, you know, that happens too. <laughs> you have well, to pick sure. your
0: battles. Yeah, I mean, you do it long enough, it's going to happen. It's inevitable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing from, the thing with coming from music is, I think, I I could see that it was possible, you know, like I, I was used to the, I was used to the idea of working for a year or two on a thing in my case, an album, um, you know, and then, and then uh, working through all those various stages of completion, like the editing and like in music's case, like the liner notes, the PR, like that attention to detail, um, the website, like, I mean, you know, all, all of that. It's like I'd seen that happen for myself like three or four times. And so knowing that it was possible and that if you just like, you know, work hard enough and and try to make something really good, that it probably will find its way into the world. I think that that assurance um, is is really crucial. Like I think that if you're just starting out in anything, and when I was just starting out as a musician, you're just sort of so burdened by that worry that, nothing is going to come of this, that it's just a huge waste of your time and that you just have this sort of miniature tragedy, you know, like brewing, like hovering over your autobiography. Or something. <laughs> have you ever you been, know?
0: have you ever been like horribly, horribly depressed or had to deal with anything like that?
1: All the time.
0: All the time. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you battle that creatively? And, Cause I think a lot of writers do, you know, especially as they, if they hit a, a point where there's resistance, um creatively and it's like the the words aren't coming or what they've worked on becomes confusing like have you ever been like just bedridden alienated from yourself and convinced that it was not going to get better <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel horrible all the time, like, on a daily basis. (laughs) I mean, like, sometimes I'm like, I wake up and fail every day of my life. (laughs) I have, like, I'm lucky because I have a lot of really, really sweet, supportive people around me, but I, yeah, I generally feel terrible, and, like, everything is pointless and bad, and I have to, like, beat back that feeling to do anything, and that's just the way it is.
0: And you work in the morning.
1: I wish I could work in the morning. I mean, with, with my baby, it's like a little tough cause I basically have to get up and take care of her in the morning. Right. Um, but the morning is I, I like, you know, I think it's a really productive time for a lot of people, you know? And, and if, um, if it was possible for me to kind of do that, like get up at 6am without waking her up and work, it's not possible right now <laughs> cause she would just get up too if she heard me. But, um, I, I think that that's like a great schedule. Like when you're, when your mind is like, you know, just this fresh, clean, you know, slate and it's sort of like before anyone else is awake. So the distractions of like people emailing you or something aren't there, you know, just that quiet time, nothing's open yet. I mean, there's something really awesome about that.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, that, it's, that's, a, when,
1: that's, that's pretty sweet.
0: When it happens, it's ideal, but it's hard, you know? I find it like, yeah. Depending
1: I, on your circumstances, it's hard.
0: Well, yeah, and I find it frustrating sometimes. Like because I'll get caught up in work late at night, you know, and then it's like you go to bed at like one, and it's like I can't get up at you know five thirty, and it, I'm going to be a wreck, you know, if you start. I
1: know that. that's the thing because you. It's like as soon as you adopt that schedule, you're basically embracing sleep deprivation <laughs> as a way of life, and it's like not that, not yeah. In other ways, kind of destructive, but um uh, but. Like, another thing that, I'm like becoming this Stephen King, um, unpaid publicist, but another thing from that book that, um, I really took to heart is like when you get interrupted on a project, you know, like even for a week, when you're like, oh, you know, I got this other thing that I have to do, this other creative thing, and you kind of switch gears, and then that like really, in my experience, like leads to, to object depression and horror like when you go back to that project and suddenly it feels so foreign to you and you don't like it anymore you don't you know like you don't know why you were writing it you don't understand why that particular story matters like it's that that's why you know if you if you have a good idea that you're passionate about it's just like keep writing keep writing until it's done because the second that you take like a week or two off that's just going to We really mire, you know, whatever you're working on in the mud, and and that happened with my novel too. I took probably like six months off, and and it wasn't even my baby. It was just the fact that I forget what the hell happened. Maybe I had to publicize, but go go on tour for the book of essays, or you know, there there was some like some stuff I had to do that took me away from the novel for a week or two, and then. When I reread what I'd written, I hated it. Like I loathed it. I loathed myself. I didn't understand why anyone would want to read it, why I wrote it, and I just stopped. Like I stopped for six or nine months, you know. And it was—it was just going to be dead.
0: Well, and how did you come back to it?
1: Um, well, this nice man f- who worked at Bomb Magazine, named Paul Morris, he now works for Pen the Penn foundation, um, he contacted me and asked if I had any fiction for, um, for bomb. And I was like, uh, I don't have any short stories, but I like, I don't know, I wrote this thing and I could try to find an excerpt. And he was like, yeah, send me something. And then I sent him something and he liked it and he published it. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not that bad. (laughs) Like, you know, it kind of gave me that, like, that little like boost of faith that, that it's not, it wasn't that bad. And I should really revisit it. And then, and then I started working on it again after that. So in. I really, yeah. And I thanked him, you know, I mean, I really like, I feel like those little like firecrackers of um support and, and um yeah, like votes of confidence from your, whatever, you know, your colleagues or your, your, Readers or your world are just so essential to keeping you going because it is really, you know, lonely a kind of lonely experience, full of doubt. Sure, sit and write something that's long.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't want this to end without asking you about the Soviet Union and your uh, ancestry and, you know, all that stuff because I feel like it's so essential to. Uh, you and your art, and it's just fascinating. So you alluded to it earlier briefly. You were born in the Soviet Union, correct?
1: Yes, yeah. and,
0: and then your folks moved, in, and then when did you arrive in the States?
1: Um, I was only one and a half when we arrived in the States.
0: Okay, so but for, for all intents and purposes, you, you you've had an American life.
1: I have had an American life, but I was raised by, you know, like, my parents were really strict in that, like, they only allowed Russian at home, and my grandparents came when I was five, and they didn't speak English, and I spent half of the year with them. I spent every weekend, every vacation, you know, up through high school with them. And so, even though, like, I grew up, or I grew up in America, but it really felt like as soon as I was like came home and closed the door behind me. <laughs> it was like this other country, wow. you know, like all the food, the language that was spoken, definitely the cultural and political attitudes. Everything was just, you know, straight from the Soviet union.
0: So why did you guys immigrate?
1: Well, my dad was a political refugee. He, he, KGB tried to recruit him when he was in college. He was a physics student. He's, you know, good physicist and, and he knew English. Um, and those were highly prized qualities um, by the KGB. And then he refused. And then he, they blacklisted him, so he couldn't publish. He couldn't go to He couldn't publish like physics papers. He couldn't go to grad school. He couldn't work like a normal job. So he was the night watchman at the city zoo in Kharkov, Ukraine, the city where we lived. What's it called? Um, it's I guess Americans maybe pronounce it Kharkov. In Russian, it's kind of a (laughs) 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 nice, phlegmy sound at the beginning, but it's like K A K H A R K O V, Um, and yeah, so he was the night watchman at the zoo, and you know, obviously not a great career path for him. (laughs) um,
0: The physics, and then and then
1: yeah, we we applied to leave.
0: Okay, cause, okay. And my mom
1: was my mom couldn't get a job at all, which is like unemployment was illegal in the Soviet Union. Like you weren't supposed to not be able to work, but because she was married to, you know, someone who was blacklisted, she just no one would hire her, so she just stayed home with me.
0: Okay. So, and when you immigrate, or like when you know you've refused the KGB or whatever, and you 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 go through an application process, like we want asylum, and then like, did you have to escape the Soviet Union, or did you just get to fly out?
1: No, no, we just got to fly out, and we actually, like, didn't even – like, my, my, my mom has, like, a really interesting background in that, like, um, she – her um, – my, my grandmother, her mother, um, she uh, – she was the daughter of, of an officer in the white army who fought for the czar, who died when she was only one, and her family got divided into the whites and the reds. Like, you know, my grandmother's father, he died fighting for the czar. That my grandmother's uncle, that guy's brother, he got a very high-ranking position with Stalin. He was, like, in the Department of Defense. And he was, like, some super high-ranking official in the communist government with, like, you know, all the things, fancy apartment and, you know, all the things no one else could get. And when my mom decided we just really had to leave, like, this uncle actually, like, helped us leave, which was, you know, really brave of him <laughs> when, you, when you think about it. Though Stalin was no longer alive at that point, but um, a lot of people who, who tried to leave became, you know, refuseniks, like a lot of Jewish people. Um, they would wait years. They would wait, like, you know, seven years and just be in this horrible state of limbo where the government was neither letting them, you know, have a livelihood nor leave the country. And um, we got to leave within a year.
0: Well, that's yeah that's Thanks fortunate to him. so that
1: was yeah so that was that's what
0: happened And then so you were you were like a cold war kid from Russia living in the United States like that had to be, had to have been interesting
1: Yeah it's it's so it's weird how how distant those times seem now like right, the, yeah. the like cuz now people just think Russians are I don't know, like funny people who drink a lot and say, I don't know. I don't know. Like the American perception of like Russians now is like really, really different from when I grew up, when it was like scary. Like I remember a time when it was scary to speak on the street in Russian to my family. Like it was so not cool, you know, that, that people would really like, I, I had people come up to me, you know, and say, go home. And, you know, like I'm, during halloween like one year people um in shaving cream wrote on our driveway commies go home
0: like, like did you, Which, what was your experience of watching rocky 4 did you ever watch that
1: <laughs> i don't remember rocky 4 I, I probably a, did watch it but
0: it's completely uh, absurd it's like with ivan drago i've watched it recently and it has not aged well i mean it, it's
1: oh no <laughs> it's um absurd. Yeah, I mean there were there were a lot of those, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and there were, you know, whatever Natasha and Boris. I mean there were definitely a lot of dastardly Russian um villains. But you know, I don't know. I grew up think, thank goodness in a fairly liberal place, so I'm sure that I was spared the worst of it. But I did totally americanize my name. I kind of hid my background. I wasn't proud of it. I didn't um, you know, I didn't ever kind of mention, you know, Russian things, even though it was like a huge part of my home life.
0: So wait, what's your name? I tried to act as
1: American. My name's Alina, but all through school and college, everyone called me Allie. And my husband still calls me that because he just grew up calling me. We went to high school together. He just grew up calling me that.
0: Okay. And then then Simone was something else?
1: Simone... No, Simone's my last name. <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't
0: like Simonov or, you know.
1: No, well, actually, Simone is my mother's last name. My father's last name is Volenkin. And when I was 25, I changed from my dad's last name to my mom's last name. But that was for singing because nobody could remember or say Volankin. But Volenkin didn't sound particularly Russian. It's just kind of like a weird last name. Like it would be a last name. Everyone was like, what is that?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Like where is that you know what I mean like it it wasn't it 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 wasn't a ski it wasn't like something like that but um yeah that was it was definitely like a weird time and 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 it's it's just so funny now to look back at this time where you you were from this like cool weird culture and you couldn't be proud of it and you couldn't really discuss it and it was all kind of like you know not good <laughs> like and it's so benign now, you know well,
0: and so and so how do you describe? How would you describe Russian culture, particularly like expatriated Russian culture that you uh, witnessed as a kid? Like, were there any defining traits or characteristics or, you know, do you know what I'm saying? What's your understanding well, of your Russianness?
1: Well, now I realize that I grew up in this just kind of like sheltered bubble that was like mostly Russian Jews, like 99% um and and mostly just like bourgeois very well educated you know russian jews but i wasn't like it wasn't like a slice of slice of russian life you know what i mean like right. the people who ended up here like in those years in the 80s like these were intellectuals you know very well educated mostly with advanced degrees who managed to get out um and mostly jews um are you, and
0: are you, are you guys and so jews? i was
1: my dad is my dad is but my mom isn't okay and so I, I don't really i mean i wasn't raised jewish so i don't so much consider myself jewish but um uh yeah so so when i actually went to russia it was kind of a shock cuz i'm like oh there are you know just regular people here driving taxis and stuff you know like like not everyone is like an engineer or like a you know a math professor or something
0: isn't it, i mean isn't it so like it seems so <laughs> backwards or like uh it seems self-destructive from the perspective of the Soviet government that they would purge all these like intellectuals and smart people with advanced degrees who can do stuff and engineers, you yeah. know what I mean? like, a, like a society. It's,
1: a, it's actually like a huge problem there. I mean, they talk about the brain drain a lot, you know, and, and, um, after after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was for a time um, like a semi-successful effort to repatriate some of those people. You know, to offer people incentives to move back. I mean, and I think that and maybe if you're like a recent immigrant and you really miss it, or or maybe you're like a business person who saw like opportunities for yourself, like it it, it appealed to some people. But I mean, my parents would never ever ever go back. But the brain drain issue there is 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 a is an constant news item so So, they are they're aware that you know they fucked up (laughs) or they they are continuing to fuck up or whatever you know so
0: when did you first go there and what brought you what brought you to russia
1: i first went there because i got a job i worked in international development and i ran an alternative to the peace corps program that served a weird part of siberia that the peace corps didn't cover I found out for very good reason (laughs) because it was just like so in the back of the beyond and so impossible to get to and so like sort of impossible to serve. It was like the one place left. And um, I worked for this really weird nonprofit that was just like founded by an eccentric rich guy who just like, um, you know, like he just fell in love with this part of the world and he decided to kind of be the Peace Corps of this part of the world. And so I recruited volunteers to teach English there. And so the very first time I went to Russia, it wasn't to Moscow or St. Petersburg or Kiev or, I mean, that's not, you know, the former Soviet Union. I went to Chita, which is like a very, very, very forlorn city in Siberia near the border of China and Mongolia. And I spent a month there. It was like total culture shock.
0: I can imagine. And and have you since been to, like, Moscow? Have you done the, the regular tour stuff where you've seen the big I cities?
1: D- I did. I did it much later, though, because I really, like, worked in that part of the world for a long time. And I always had to, like, transfer. I mean, for a long time, I only saw the Moscow airport. That was, like, <laughs> my only experience, because you have to transfer there to fly to Siberia. But, um, yeah, eventually I did, and I actually eventually looked up my family's relatives in St. Petersburg and had, like, a reunion with them, and now we're all in touch, and they've come to the U.S. to visit us, and, you know, so it was really, really awesome
0: on the whole. And did it surprise you? I mean, like, did you have this – I mean, you must have had some sort of image of it in your mind, and then you get there, and you see the real thing, or you meet your relatives, and you see, you know, uh, your your origins, essentially. Like, was it – a lot different than you anticipated, or was it strangely familiar?
1: I mean, it's it's weird, because the landscape, like the Soviet buildings, I don't know, have you ever been to Eastern Europe?
0: Uh, the farthest I've been is Prague. I don't know if that...
1: Okay, mean- well, Prague has some of this. I mean, just those, like, huge Soviet block concrete buildings sure. that are everywhere. Like, that, I mean, it's just, so, it's just so weird. You just feel like you're in a movie, you know, and taking the train places. Like there were things about it that I just, you know, uh, that that felt so foreign, but just the fact that everyone was speaking Russian and reminded me of my grandmother and was offering me tea and like fattening starchy foods that I up eating. Like there's something so incredible about that. I mean, I do think it's probably something like if you grow up African American here and you go to Africa and you're suddenly like, Oh my God, everyone's like me, you know, like I'm, I feel totally at ease, you know, with these people in this culture, in this context. Like that was really awesome. It was just really nice for me. Like I, I never, I never felt comfortable like with American parents with like the parents of my friends because all the adults in my life were, were Russian people who had a really specific way of being. Like what? And uh, just like, I don't know, just the things that they talk about. Like, I mean, for one thing, Russians are just like, their their idea of friendship is very different from I, American's idea of friendship. Like they really believe in this sort of like old school true friendship, where you're like brothers and you really commit to each other. And there's no such thing as like these like Facebook friend acquaintancy. Like everyone is my friend. Like that was that's just like really looked down on. And so it's it's sort of like a more intense, you know, it's sort of more intense the relationships that you form.
0: That's interesting. And, uh, that's interesting because I and I don't mean to. Uh, interrupt but like i live in mm-hmm. little russia in los angeles Oh wow! so oh cool you know there's a lot of uh, elder russians in my neighborhood so I'm, I'm just fascinated to hear you talk about it because like culturally i found it a little bit hard. i mean uh, there's a big huge age gap which is a lot of the problem like a lot of these people are in their 70s and 80s so it's not like we're going to go to like right. shoot pool or something <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I do i do notice like there's just certain things i notice because i'm always like hi how are you and like i don't get a lot of like hellos from the elders and I don't know. It's just, it's harder for me to access and I don't quite know. Yeah. Why. Maybe it's me. Well,
1: in part because it's like, you know, you're a stranger until you're not. And then you're like a brother. <laughs> and like, I think that the notions of hospitality, like th- there's not this street culture where you smile at people and say hi when you pass by. And like, that's just like not part of the culture, but, um, But there is like this incredible wellspring of hospitality and generosity, like once you sort of access people's world. And there's also just Russians are so much more blunt and like, I mean, I I guess if I was just going to be plain spoken, honest than Americans, there's no such thing as small talk. People just speak bluntly and honestly about what's going on in their life, even if it's a really small encounter. And if someone says, how are you? Like saying fine is just weird. Like, you say how you really are. I like And if you're people. shitty, you say shitty.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: I mean, I grew up with my grandmother, like, I mean, having these, like, she lived in public housing in Cambridge, and just, like, every day, like, because uh, I grew up half in public housing with her in Cambridge, because I spent half of every year with my grandparents, and, like, we just... Constantly be having these awkward encounters in the elevator where some like blue hair, blue haired American granny would be like, "How are you?" And to my grandmother, my grandmother, would be like, "Terrible, you know, <laughs> my foot hurts, and like this happened and that happened, and like just the look on these people's faces, they just be like, "What? Like this? The script, this isn't how the script is supposed
0: to go." Right. Right? I, I was just, I was just trying to have a superficial exchange in an elevator. Yeah. You're getting, yeah, you're getting I don't really care it.
1: how you are, right. <laughs> and 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 my grandmother never changed. She never like. She was completely, like, oblivious to this, you know, whatever the ritual was supposed to be. She just didn't care. She's like, why would you even do that? Why would you even lie? Just this is a question. I'm answering it honestly. So that's the culture I grew up in, you know, and I think that for that reason, I always just grew up around Americans feeling like I was censoring myself and trying to, like, just being a little bit of an actress, trying to fit into this culture that wasn't really first nature to me.
0: Is that how you feel right now?
1: Yeah, that's how I feel this minute, Brad. Just, just, no, I make you an honorary Russian.
0: Okay, good. I want, I want straight talk. I want to know how you really are.
1: <laughs> well, I've I've been very forthright, I think. Okay,
0: yeah, no, I feel the same way. I wouldn't want you holding back. Um, no. Nope. and you know, it's been it's fascinating. You've had a fascinating go and I like the I like that you've uh done music and now you're doing books and um you know, I I'm sort of jealous that you can do both. Um, and I wish you well. Well, I'm
1: actually m- mostly just doing one now. If that makes me feel better, no, but just <laughs> the fact, that, just the fact that
0: you can open your mouth and carry a tune, uh, you know.
1: Oh, well, you're nice. Thank uh, you.
0: Um, so yeah, so best of luck with the new novel. Best of luck with future writing projects, and best of luck with uh, with the two year old.
1: Thanks, Brad, and you too.
0: Okay, everybody, that's all for now. That is Alina Simone. Go get her book. It's called Note to self it's available now wherever books are sold from faber and faber you can find her online at alina she's on the twitter where her handle is at alina simone and you can find her on the facebook as well thanks as always to kill rock for all the good music be sure to check out killrockstars.com and hey don't forget to get the app the free official other people app the official app of this program It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can share via social media. And you can access the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. It's free. Otherwise, uh, I hope you don't have any back pain. I hope you are not experiencing pain in your lower lumbar currently. Or elsewhere along your spinal uh, spinal column. If you are, uh, I hope you find the answer. And I hope that in the process of finding that answer, you do not come into contact with a sexual predator. Please remember that Baudelaire often wore pink gloves and that Wittgenstein played the clarinet. Uh, That's it for now. Thanks again to Alina Simone. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I should be back in a few days with another uh, episode and another conversation. But I do uh, have another wedding to go to this weekend. So it's a little iffy. I think I'll be able to do Sunday's show before I leave. That's the plan. Currently. But I'm not making a 100% guarantee. I'm going to leave it up in the air. It's a cliffhanger. Okay? You'll just have to wait and see. Is that exciting for you? Are you on the edge of your seat?